Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. So welcome to City Church. Um, so, uh, so last week we started a very exciting series called Apprehending James. How many of you were there for that? Last week, if you were not here, I encourage you to uh, listen to the podcast. It was an amazing message um, given by, no, <laughs> I, I shared it. It wasn't, it was good though. It was good because it's Jesus' word. And so we learned all about uh, this man, James, right? And we said that James was the half brother of Jesus, that um, the one who wrote this New Testament letter, and he was the bishop of Jerusalem, right? And so we learned all these things about him in 62 AD. He was killed. Uh, you guys remember this? He was killed by the high priest of, uh, of Jerusalem at that time, and uh, he was stoned. And so it was a pretty big deal. And James writes this letter probably somewhere between 40 and 50 AD. It's the earliest New Testament book. Uh, that Most scholars agree that it's the earliest New Testament book. And so uh, he writes this letter that we're going to literally walk through verse by verse by verse. And we covered the first 11 verses. And by the way, just to help you, we have wallpaper for your iPhone and your computer that you can follow every single week with the verses that we cover. And so you can really start to, you know, get these verses in your soul. And then on top of that, if you go to community groups, many times throughout the week we'll be discussing these verses on a weekly basis in community group or sometimes bi-weekly basis or whatever as community group leaders are led. But uh, you'll consistently be getting this scripture in your heart. Isn't that exciting? So we're going to pull into James. Um, Now, why are we studying James? Well, there's one big reason I mean, obviously, it's the scripture, so that's uh, thoroughly important to study all of the scripture. But James, in particular, emphasizes the, practiced, the practices of an authentic Christian lifestyle. In other words, he says, listen, it's very good to say that you believe, but if you don't act like you believe, then your heart really hasn't been changed. And so you've got to actually practice the Christian lifestyle. You've got to practice it, not by your own strength, but by the grace of God. And here's what that practice looks like, Okay. And if you remember last week, does anybody remember that we talked about this idea that, uh, you know, James, um, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, he starts off with count it all joy, all these tensions, right? And he says, listen, if you're a Christian and you're following Christ, then having Jesus with you changes everything. You remember that? Having Jesus with you changes everything. And he says trials look different. Times of confusion look different. He says that, you know, poverty and wealth look different. If you have Jesus with you, it changes everything. That's how he starts this thing, right? And the whole big idea of James is if it's not lived, it's not real. So if you say you're practicing, but you're not acting like you love God, then it's not real. So now we're going to go, James chapter 1, if you have a Bible, you can open it up. I'm in the English Standard Version. I'm going to read. Um, If you have a different translation, that's fine, but you can read it on the screen as we go. And we're going to cover verses 12 to verses 18, to verse 18 this this morning. You ready? No one is? You guys ready? All right, I just want to make sure you're awake. Here we go. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow, Due to change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we honor you in the reading of your word. We believe that these are not just words on a page, but they are actually eternal truth. We believe that James was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write divine truth for all of us to learn and to know 2,000 years later. Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds today. I pray that these would not be bland words that we hear from a book, but they would be living and active to make us more like Jesus. Convict us of our sin. Awaken our hearts to what you would have us do. Change us, transform us, renew us, remind us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is going to be stinking awesome. It's going to be awesome. And listen, it's going to be awesome because it's God's word. It's his truth. And like a briar just got stuck in my ankle. Okay. So on October 5th, 1975, Leslie Mulseed was sexually assaulted and murdered, being stabbed seven times in West Yorkshire, England. In the UK, she was 11 years old. Okay. 11-year-old Leslie was stabbed and murdered 12 times. Now, there was outcry all throughout the town, okay? It was a smaller area, and everybody knew Leslie, and it was a, a brutal, terrible murder. And so somebody murdered this poor 11-year-old girl and sexually assaulted her, right? And so the town is outraged, the police are outraged, the parents are outraged, and they say something must be done, justice must be served. And in a frenzy, they begin to search and look for the person who committed this terrible crime. They come across a 23-year-old man named Stefan Kisko. Put Stefan up there for me. There he is. Stefan was a very simple guy. He was a, a real simple guy. He, was, he, was, uh, he lived with his mom. He was 23. Um, he was, uh, was kind of naive, very childlike, kind of a, a simpler type of individual. And uh, Stefan had been going through some personal issues, been struggling with some things. And through some circumstantial evidence, he became the prime suspect and was arrested. Now, during the trial, they had a number of people uh, you know, uh, eyewitness accounts saying that they had saw Stefan in important places that would lead him to be the murderer. This is before DNA evidence. And after a, a very passionate, heated trial, this guy, Stefan Kisko, was convicted of the murder of Leslie Mulsey. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Okay? Now, his mother, Stefan's mom, in whom he lived with, was outraged by this. She knew that her son had not committed the crime. And so she said, my son is innocent, my son is innocent. Nobody listened to her. Justice was satisfied in the hearts of the parents. Justice was satisfied in the hearts of the community. The community could be peaceful and go back to normal health once again, right? So everybody was happy. This thing was closed. There was closure. This was a terrible, horrific thing, but it was this one crazy guy. We removed him, and now we're back to peace and tranquility. And their, their tranquility was protected and safe once again in their little town. So 16 years went by, and Stefan's mom consistently, consistently, consistently came to the authorities and said, you must reopen this case, you must reopen this case. Finally, one lawyer took her seriously and reopened the case. They now had the use of DNA evidence. This was in the 1990s, they, 16 years after uh, he was convicted. And they had the use of DNA evidence, and through uh, reexamination of the facts, they realized that there was no possible way that Stefan could have committed this crime that he spent 16 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. The DNA evidence actually led them to someone else who they in fact convicted for the murder of this girl. And after 16 years in prison, this simple, gentle, naive young man was released. Now, can you imagine? I mean, some of us are 16 years old. That's your entire life. Some of you have been married for 16 years. That's your entire married life. Think about losing 16 years of your life for a crime that you did not commit. 
Historians call it one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in the history of the UK. And so this individual is released. They pay him some money in increments, right? But at this time, Stefan's mind had already been so corrupted and so messed up by this process of being thrown into prison for 16 years where he hadn't committed the crime that he came out and he was literally a social recluse. He couldn't be with people. He couldn't be around people. And so he hid in his home. He uh, became very sick. He uh, took on some habits that were not healthy for his body. And a year later, he died of a heart attack. He never received full payment for the money that they had promised him after he had uh, gotten released. And his mom died shortly after that of pneumonia, of a broken heart, really. And so at 41 years old, Stefan Kisko disappears in obscurity with most of his life spent in a penitentiary for a crime that he didn't commit. Well, what happened? Well, what happened was in the fury, in the flurry, not fury, excuse me, in the flurry, stay with us, of a trial, people jumped to a conclusion based on shaky evidence. That's what happened, right? In the midst of wanting to have an answer, these people jumped to this conclusion, said, this man is guilty, this man is it, let's close it up, rack it up, package it up, this is it, this is what happened, this was the problem, I know it because we need closure, and this looks like it could possibly be the truth, and so this guy is it, let's push it forward, let's close the deal, let's finish this off. In the flurry and the tension of a terrible situation, they jumped to a conclusion with poor evidence, right? Well, welcome to James chapter 12, verses 18. This is exactly James's concern in the scripture. Not that you're going to convict Stephen Kisko, but that you are going to jump to a conclusion based on poor evidence in the midst of a trial. That you're going to look out at the trial of your life right now. Maybe it's a trial of finances. Maybe it's a trial of relationship. Maybe it's a trial of health. Maybe it's a trial of a million different things. Maybe your job, your occupation is having a struggle. How many have ever had a trial? Hmm. Some of you have. And some of you are just like, dude, I'm not raising my hand. I don't care what you say. There's nothing that you can say that's good. Last time I raised my hand, you volunteered me for a stinking day. There's nothing I'm going to do to raise my hand. So James's concern is that you and I are going to look at the evidence, okay? Look at the evidence of our lives, the trials of our lives, and our response is going to be, God is not good. And God is not here. So let's look at these passages one by one. And get into what James has to say. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For what? Wait, hold on a second. Already we know that James is telling us, listen, Christian, it is not true that life will be perfect if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's just get that out there. You are going to have trial, period. And in fact, the biggest and most important thing is not that God solves your trial. Although, yes, Scripture's clear. He wants to heal you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to prosper you. He wants to bless you. But you are living in the midst of a war zone, and the most important thing is not that you get blessed, prospered, or healed. The most important thing is that you remain, yeah, steadfast. Blessed is the man who's steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. See, here's what he's saying. He's saying there are going to be times, friend, when everything in your life is shouting, God is not here. God has failed. Have you ever felt that way before? God is not good. God cannot be trusted. I don't understand what's going on, and I'm pretty sure that he's failed me, so I'm taking the reins back, and I'm gonna lead this thing because he keeps messing it up. Right? And what, what, what James is saying here is he's saying, listen, I can just imagine James' perspective. Just imagine him for, for a second, okay? This is the half-brother of Jesus. I, mean, I kind of see him like Clint Eastwood. 
All right? Now, I have no evidence to prove that he looks like Clint Eastwood, but in my own mind, this is how I see James, and I see him kind of grab your shirt like this and say, listen to me. You know, like, I don't have a very good Clint Eastwood, but you know what I'm saying? And, and he's, I could see him looking at you with his fiery eyes and going, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. You know, and then he, and he looks at you and he says, uh, it, for, some of you don't even know who Clint Eastwood is. Anyways, <clears throat> all right, so, and it, you know, he looks at him and he says, hey, bub, let me tell you something, right? He says, I've seen him grow up. I saw him when he was healing the sick. I saw him when he was turning water into wine. I saw him when he put mud in a guy's eyes and his eyes blazed open for the first time. And then I saw this half-brother of mine die on a cross and I still didn't believe. And I watched him hang on that cross and yell, Father, forgive them, when everyone else was heckling and ridiculing him. And then... Three days later, I watched him. I was standing at the sink washing dishes with my kids. They were hanging out. And all of a sudden, my half-brother walked in the room. And I dropped the dish right on the floor. And I turned to him. And I was shocked. And he walked right up to me. And he said, James, stick your hand in my holes. And James would look at you today. And he would say, remain steadfast under trial. Remain steadfast. I don't understand why it all happens. I'm not sure why these trials come, but they are going to come, and there is one that you can trust. I'm sure of it. Remain steadfast under trials. Do not give up. Do not change God to fit your circumstance. Know that he is good, and remain steadfast under trial. Because if you do, you'll receive a crown of life. You'll receive a blessing from God. He will reward you for your steadfastness in the midst of confusion and trial. That was really good. But here's the thing, okay? Just don't quote me on the fact that he had dishes and a wife. That was just my, you know, that he looked like Clint Eastwood. That was my adaptation, all right? But here's what I'm saying. James had a conviction about the steadfastness of God that was immovable, and he was trying to transfer it to you and me. So look what he says in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God cannot be tempted by evil. Some of you in this room right now have a wrong view of God. Maybe you've never been to church. Welcome to City Church. Maybe you have. Maybe you've been to church 10,000 times, and you still have a jacked up view of God. Because see, what happens is, as soon as circumstances come that don't fit with our perspective of God, we immediately start to adjust God, Right? We say, well, maybe he's, uh, you know, and one of the first things that we do, especially if you had a mom or a dad or someone in your family or friends that, that was very manipulative, you start to think that God is just trying to mess with you. Have you ever felt that way before? You start to feel like, well, God, what do you, you know, why are you letting this happen? And you think of God as a manipulator, as a tempter. I want to tell you something. James is, is saying here, no, 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 God is perfectly good. He is not trying. And so some of us go to the other side and you see Jesus, God is kind of like, you know, Barney. Barney is a big purple dinosaur. And he's just kind of like, oh, you know, hello, I love you, I just love you, let's play in the backyard. You know, I mean, he has no, he has no conviction, he has no power, he has no, and that's how some of us view God. We say, well, God is good, he's kind of gentle, you know, fat, purple good. I mean, he's just kind of, he's just kind of fluffy good, he's just a goody, good, 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 good guy. Wrong, that's not God either. What the scripture describes is a God who is our father, and who is our captain. And there are times, friends, where he allows and permits trial, okay? But he does not tempt you with evil. 
Let me illustrate. I have kids. How many parents do we have here? Okay, lots of us are parents. Okay, now, the least favorite time in the history of kiddom in my life is anything that involves poop. That is my least favorite time. So wiping their butts when they wear diapers is not awesome. I tried to dodge it like the bubonic plague. You know, I was always trying to get out of that when my kids were in diapers. But there's an even worse time than diaper time, in my opinion. And it's the time right between diaper time and I'm 100% on my own time. And it's this tension of, I know how to poop in the toilet, but I don't yet know how to clean up the job. Right? And so, so there's this time where, where, you know, and my kids are five and three, so one is on the other side and one is right in the middle. Okay? And uh, there's this time where it's like, you know, you know I, can, I can poop in the toilet, but I don't want to use the TP yet. I can't fold it. I, can't, I, can't, I just don't have good, the skills to, to operate the toilet paper. For you that are 21 and you're thinking about, you know, nothing about this, let me just welcome you to the world of parenting, okay? All right? And so, uh, so, you know, for my sons, and I'm, just so because I'm saving all my sermons to archive for my sons, so I'm not going to mention which one by name or anything, because I don't want them to hate me when they're 25 or whatever. But uh, my sons, you know, um, one of them, well, both of them really, have struggled with the wiping process, okay? And, and, you know, it came to a point, honestly, it came to a point where I had to say, listen, I have taught you the ways of the wiping, right? I have showed you how this thing operates. You must be empowered to do it yourself, and guess what I did? I permitted trial, okay? So, you know, in the beginning, this one was like, okay, well, then I'm just not going to do it. Done. Well, that creates some serious discomfort, doesn't it? And some interesting smells, right? And so it did not work out well. And so I said, son, I'm going to permit you to struggle in the midst of the non-TP using time of your life because you have got to learn that this job must be done. And it must be done well, and you can't skip it right? It's not something that you can skip, but I will permit a trial in your life. I am not going to be wiping your butt when you're 17, right? I have got to teach you that this must be done on your own because I'm your father and because I love you. Now, here's what I didn't do. I don't go in the bathroom and say, all right, son, go to the bathroom and like take out the toilet paper and be like, ha, 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 you know, you know, toilet paper for you. Oh, no, dad, but you know, that has never happened. I don't do that. You know why I don't? Because I'm not evil. I'm a father who loves his son, Right? Now, what the scripture is saying here is he's saying, listen, God will permit you to have trials. But in the midst of those trials, he's not the one tempting you to evil, okay? He's not doing malicious, evil, manipulative things to cause you to sin. That's not what he's doing. He's not stealing your underwear, hiding the toilet paper. This is not the God that we serve. He is a God that is perfectly good, but in his wisdom, he disciplines us. He permits trials so that we can be trained to become more like him. Now, here's the thing. In the midst of the trial, what is he looking for you to do? He is not looking for you to make a good excuse for him. He is looking for you to trust him, to have complete confidence from an incomplete perspective. Well, God said she, you know, if we pray for the sick, they're going to be healed. And I've been praying every day for her and she's not healed. What's the deal? Trust me. What if she dies? Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. If you'll trust me, you'll receive a crown of life. In Revelation, he says it like this. He says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He's saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. There are going to be circumstances throughout your life that you cannot understand why God has permitted these things. But what I can tell you is that God is sovereign and that God is good and that those things do not change. 
they do not change. In his sovereignty, he has permitted a season in which there are attacks and trials that are not from his hand, but by his permission. And he says, in the midst of those attacks, I want you to remain steadfast. And I want you to trust me. And I don't want you to change my character based on your circumstance. But believe instead. Verse 13. We already read. Verse 14. Where does this thing come from then? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Everybody with me say, own desire. Own desire. Second time was twice as bad as the first time. Okay, so what this means is that every person, check this out, every person has their own desire. You've got to own this thing. You have got desires in your heart that are unique to you. And I would be very cautious to, you know, I would cautious you, I would tell you to be cautious about judging someone else's desire. Okay? Because every person has been given their own flavor of temptation and sin. And every person has their own struggle that they have to deal with. What's yours? Maybe yours is greed, and you've never given to a church. I'm not looking for your money right now, friend. I'm looking to break you free. And you say, no, it's mine, no, it's mine, no, 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 it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, mine. And you have to have more, and you have to have another, and you have to do this, and you find yourself buying your whatever. Fifth thing, when you only need one. Maybe your issue is sexual lust. And you say to yourself, you know, I just can't control it. I just, I just, every time I have that temptation, I just run to it. And it's, this is my, maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's an addiction to a substance. Maybe it's an addiction to work. Maybe it's an addiction to wealth. Maybe it's gossip. And you're one of those people that you just cannot, it just keeps coming out of your mouth. And it just keeps coming. And you're just like, you know, I just really think that we should be because she keeps lying to her husband, you know. And she was cheating on him. I know that she was. Oh, um, we should, you know, pray for her right? Maybe your issue is pride. Maybe your issue is that you need control. What's your issue? You know, it's a dangerous thing. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't know. I don't even think I have an issue. That is the most dangerous place in the entire planet. It's dangerous because you know what? Every single one of us has our own desire. That's what the scripture teaches. Each one is carried away, lured and enticed by their own desire. Maybe yours is laziness. Everybody's sitting back like this, you know. (laughs) it's you maybe yours is laziness maybe yours is you're terrified of confrontation and it's destroying your life maybe yours is worry maybe yours is self-glory what's your own desire because here's what's going to happen i'm going to tell you what's going to happen you are going to be lured and enticed by that desire probably for the rest of your life okay probably See, holiness is not the absence of temptation. Let me clarify that for you right now. Holiness is the absence of submission to temptation. All right? Very important. Okay, so what I'm telling you is chances are that if it's one of those things, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's rage, if it's that thing in your life, that own desire, it will probably try to kill you for the rest of your life. You don't have to be dominated by it. You don't have to be controlled by it. But chances are it's going to keep coming around. And it's going to try to lure and entice you. Now, does anybody like fishing here? 
Okay, some of us like fishing. You know, I, um, I took my sons, we were just on a hike to Gillette's Castle. Anybody ever been to Gillette's Castle? It's very cool there. We had a, we had a great time, me and Christy and the boys went uh, last week, and um, it was really fun. And you know, on our way back, we had just gotten them these awesome little mini fishing poles. And so we saw this little pond, and we were like, oh, this would be super fun just to go hang out by the pond. And then we were like, oh, there's fish in there, we should catch some fish. And so we didn't have anything to fish with, so we just took some orange peels, and we threw them out there on the hook on the orange peel. Now, don't you realize that uh, fish don't typically eat orange peels? All right, but it seemed like they were interested in them, so they came up and they kind of nibbled on the orange peel. And I'm thinking to myself, we're going to be here for six months to catch one stupid fish because as soon as they come up, they nibble on it. They say, "That's not my desire. I don't really like that." Right? I tried it out, but I don't typically eat orange peels. I'm out of here, and they leave. And so nothing is happening. We're not catching anything. And so I'm like, okay, I've got to get something that is their own desire. I have to lure and entice them with something that they long for. And so I started digging through the dirt, and I found some worms. And I, I put those worms on the hook, and, I, and my wife was the first one to cast, and she, it was supposed to be the kid's turn, but anyways, she, she threw it out, she threw it out, and it hit the water, boom, boom, I got a fish. I mean, it was that fast. It was like unbelievably fast. They immediately went for it. Why? Because I appealed to them in their area of desire, okay? And here's the truth, that for a fish, a worm is a good thing wrapped around a deadly hook, Right? And so for most of us, our own desires are good things wrapped around a deadly hook. I want to be successful. That's a good thing. I want to care about other people's needs. That's a good thing, but it leads to gossip. I want to have a wife and a family. That's a good thing, but it leads to sexual morality if I'm not in God's will with it. So all of these different areas could be good things oftentimes, but they become corrupt when we are lured and enticed by our own desires, right? And look at what the scripture says happens when you begin to be lured and enticed. This is such interesting language that James uses here. He says, don't think that you're being tempted by God. He doesn't do that, right? Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed. These are actually fishing terms in the Greek language. Lured and enticed by his own desire. In verse 15, then desire when it has conceived. That's an interesting choice of words. Gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, I'm not a doctor. We have a few doctor people in here. How long does it take for a lady to have a baby after they are impregnated? This is not a trick question. <laughs> Typically about nine months, right? It's usually about nine months, right? I mean, we're all humans here? Okay. Uh, this is an elephant time. We're, yeah, nine months, right? Typically about nine months. Isn't that interesting that he uses the language of pregnancy? Did you ever stop and realize that? You've probably read this before. James uses the language of pregnancy here. He's saying, listen, it's going to take some time. Very often, you're not going to know you're pregnant right away. Sometimes you might go weeks before you even realize you're impregnated. And you're not going to start showing for even longer than that. But after a while, this thing, if it's permitted to grow, is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And look at what he says here. He says, he says that, uh, that once it's been conceived, it gives birth to sin inside you. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth. That word brings forth, we're going to get into it in a second, but that word brings forth literally means to birth, right? So he's saying once sin gets in you, it births the baby of death. That's what it births. So when you are lured and enticed by your own desires, what's happening is you are going to, in your womb, sin gets planted in there. Sin starts to grow, and every time you eat and every time you feed it, it gets bigger and bigger. I'm telling you right now, if we did a spiritual ultrasound on you, we might find in your belly sin growing because you've permitted the area of your own desire to grow. 
and you've come up with excellent excuses. And you've permitted that thing to grow and grow. Well, here's what James is telling you. Friend, you might get away with it for a month. Friend, you might feel like it has no impact for a year. Friend, you might have it for five years practicing that sin thing. It's no big deal. What's the big deal? And then all of a sudden, bam, you're going to give a baby out of you. And it's going to be death. And it's going to kill you. That's what James is saying here today. He's saying, if you let this thing hang out, if you let this thing stick around, if you just do this, it's right now, I remember the first ultrasounds we went to, you know, when our boys were just conceived or whatever, and, and, and you know, we, we, you put the thing up, and you hear, whoosh, 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 and that's that little heartbeat, right? Some of us in the spirit, if we put a little ultrasound machine up to your tummy, we would hear that, whoosh, 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 because right now in this room today, you are harboring sins in your heart. Friend, if that is you, let me urge you you must ask jesus to heal you today you must you must because if you don't that little sin is going to bring forth death don't you dare blame god don't you dare blame god it's not his fault it's your fault you let it grow you let it develop you did not forsake it you did not run from it you did not take it seriously and now it's killing you because you didn't take it seriously Verse 16, do not be deceived. He was obviously pretty concerned that people would mix this up, wasn't he? In other words, what he's saying is don't be like the police officers and the lawyers at Stefan Kisko's uh, trial. Don't be deceived. Don't just jump to conclusions. Don't start blaming God for things that are your fault. Don't start blaming God for things that are the world's fault. Don't start blaming God for things that are the devil's fault. Don't start blaming God for things that are from your flesh. Don't start blaming God. Don't be deceived, friends. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here's what he's saying. He's saying he's a father and he's trustworthy. God is a father and he's trustworthy. Now, maybe you're at this place. I, you know, I can, I can boil all of life down to this one thing. I have complete confidence in the goodness of God. You can honestly boil almost everything in life down to that one thing. The essence of your issue will almost always be, do you have complete confidence in the goodness of God? Are you tagging on to God something that is not at all his? And so he says, don't be deceived. He's a good God. Well, how can I be sure? And here's the big idea for today. How can I be sure? How can you be sure that God is good? You're going through a trial right now and you've been wondering, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why are you doing this? And he may not be doing it at all. It may be the world, the flesh, or the devil. It might just be your own desire. In fact, that's what James says. Most of the time, it's just your own desires that are messing with your life. But he says, well, you say, well, then how can I be sure that God truly is good? Well, God for once and for all has proven his goodness. And he tells us how in verse 18. So let's check this out. This is huge. This blew me away this week as I was studying this. It, made me, it just brought me to tears. James is saying, don't be deceived, friends. Don't be tricked. God is good. God is good. God is good. He is so good. He will never leave you. All this stuff in your life that is garbage, this is not from God. All this evil in your life, this manipulation, this selfishness, it is not from God. All this disease, all this pain, these things are not from God. This is from a corrupt and broken world. God is good. God is good. Remain steadfast. Don't change who he is. Stay consistent with who he is. Here's how you know once and for all that he is good, verse 18, of his own will. 
Here's what he's saying. He didn't have to do this, but he did it. No one made him. No one coerced him. No one convinced him. He did it. And here's what he did. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Guess what that word is? It's the same word that talked about bringing forth death. It's this word that means to birth from the womb. He birthed us. The Amplified Bible says it this way. He gave us birth as sons. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Listen to what he's saying today. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying that the indispensable evidence of the goodness of God is the new birth. The indispensable evidence of the goodness of God is the new birth. You find yourself in a trial and you say, well, I don't know if God is good. Well, I don't know if I can trust him once and for all, for all time. This God has proven his goodness by coming to earth, putting on human flesh, dying in my place, becoming my representative, and then planting the seed of his son in my soul so that I could be born from above, cleansed of all my sin, forgiven of all my debt, washed of all my impurities, and declared blameless and holy in the eyes of God. I look back to that every time I question the goodness of God. The goodness of God is the new birth, and that is a confidence that never moves. What I'm telling you is you might say, well, Justin, I don't know. God permanently and perfectly displayed his justice by not passing over your sins without a sacrifice. See, you sinned a lot of times, by the way. The Bible says that you sinned long before, even before you were born, you had sin in your heart as you were conceived. And you've had sin in your life since the day you were born. You've been sinning ever since. You don't sin that doesn't, that's not what makes you a sinner. You're a sinner, and that's what makes you sin. In other words, it's part of who you are. And so you've sinned, and God had to judge that sin because he's good. Not Barney good. Commander and general good. Judge good. And a good judge brings judgment upon the, unju- upon the unrighteous, right? No one would say, yeah, he's a good judge because he just lets everybody go free. No, he's a good judge because people get penalties for their crimes and so god is a good judge because of that he had to give you justice for your sins and the scripture tells us that the penalty for our sins is death separation from god eternally right but in his justice think about this in his justice he finds another to take your place who is christ himself so he is perfectly just by putting all of the crimes of your life upon christ Good in his nature, at his substance. And then beyond that, he is perfect in mercy because being good is not just being just, but also being merciful. And he displays his perfect love once again in the cross in Christ. And so when you say, well, Justin, in my circumstance, it doesn't seem like God is good. Friend, your circumstance is not the definition of God. God is defined by what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago to forever prove his goodness to you. And there is a time in this life where you will not have answers, where you will not know why God is permitting certain struggles. But let me tell you, he will permit trial, but he will never tempt you with sin. And in the midst of that trial, he is asking you to remain faithful and to trust that he's good even when you don't understand. So what's my response to this? I can trust him courageously. I can fight the fight of faith to execute his will, your kingdom come, your, world, your will be done. Listen to me, guys. This, this, this American generation is by far the most skeptical generation in our nation's history. We are a culture of cynics 
and skeptics. In fact, it's cool to be skeptical, isn't it? Where people are just like, oh yeah, you know, I don't really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really believe in anything. I don't really hold to anything. I just kind of hold to nothing. That's what I've been holding to is nothing. And that's cool. That's like culturally acceptable to just be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. With no type of foundation. What I'm saying to you now is that authentic Christianity, what James is saying is that authentic Christianity, the substance of authentic Christianity is founded on this reality that God is good and I will not move from that foundation. He's good, he's good. Well, trials make it look like he's not, but he's good. Well, circumstances may seem like he's evil, he's good. Well, why do bad things keep happening? He's good. Well, why does he keep on allowing? He's good. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what circumstance says. He has forever proven his goodness, and I have evidence, and my evidence is indisputable. And the evidence that I have is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. His goodness has been proven for all time. I don't need another example of his goodness. That's enough for all time in my life. This is what it means, guys. This is what it means in the midst of a trial to remain steadfast. This is what it means in the midst of a trial to not define your life by the circumstance, but to define your life by the goodness displayed on the cross. Is this making sense today? Because God's got a bigger plan. Let's finish this verse. The band can come up. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That we should be a kind of first fruits. You know, we're not a farming culture anymore. I mean, I know of us, a couple of us have little gardens in the backyard, but we, we, we don't, we're not a farming culture. The first fruits was a phrase that was used almost in every culture, almost every ancient culture. And it was the first produce of a new harvest. It was the first stuff that came up. Okay, And then it was typical within most cultures to dedicate that to something special. And so in the Hebrew culture, the first fruits were dedicated to God. The first fruits were the first harvest, the best, and the first harvest. And here's what the scripture is saying. Saying in Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus declares, Behold, I am making all things new. Do we see all things new yet? You don't have a resurrected body. You still have the same body that you had when you were sinning before you were a follower of Jesus, right? We don't see all things new yet. But what do we see that's new? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. So the new thing is my spirit comes alive, is united with Christ's. And for all time, for all eternity, I am made new inwardly. And that new inward man is like a seed. It's planted. And it grows and it grows and it grows so that it begins to dominate not just my spirit, but my body and my soul as well. That's what it means. And so what he's saying is he's saying, listen, listen, I've put you Christians as an example of a higher way of living on this earth. You're the first fruits of my creation. I've put you here on this planet so that you can demonstrate a different way of living. And when everyone else is freaking out in trials, you're stayed and consistent. And when everyone else is wondering where God is and how God could let this happen, you are convinced and certain that he's good and that he's in control. And when everyone else is scared of not knowing where to go or what to do and is anxious, you Christians are founded and solid, secure and unmoved because you have a confidence in a God who has already forever proven his goodness on the cross. 
I don't care what circumstances say. I don't care. He's good and I'll follow him. I can trust him and he's with me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. This isn't just a happy idea, friends. This is the, this is the source of life in your heart. Do you live this way? Or do you get terrified? Or do you say, you know, are you one of those guys that's like, yeah, you know, I decided to give up drinking and smoking. I decided to stop sleeping around because I thought God was just going to give me a perfect house, a perfect wife, a perfect everything. And when that didn't happen, man, I'm done. I'm out. He didn't, he didn't hold up his end of the deal. That is an absolute false baloney version of Christianity. And my fear for you would be that you've never been converted at, at all. I urge you this morning throw your trust on him we hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this city church podcast visit city church at www.ourcitychurch.org